following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So this morning, we are in John chapter 20. And we're looking at the story, a story that would be familiar probably to many of you if you've grown up in and around church and, and heard a few sermons in your time. It's the story of Doubting Thomas. Good old Doubting Thomas. He's pretty well known. He gets a pretty bad rap. But let's read his story here in John chapter 20, just a few short verses starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So Thomas gets a bit of a hard time, doesn't he? Poor old Thomas, you know. I mean, he's, he's, I think he's kind of like the kid in school who did one thing one time, and then he gets a nickname you know, for the rest of his life that he can't escape. Thomas is that guy. You know, he has one time of doubting Jesus, one time of doubting the resurrection, and then he's immortalized now in church history as Doubting Thomas. That's, that's all anyone knows about Thomas. He's the guy that doubted Jesus, because that's the only scene he gets in the whole of the Gospels. He Gets a few scant references in other places, but this is his big scene, and he is the doubter. And I think if Thomas was here today, he would be saying, what about all the other stuff? What about the rest of my life? What about all the things I did? Where I, where, you know, the, the good things? What about my proudest moments? What about those? Why do I have to be doubting Thomas? But we've kind of ended up making this label, doubting Thomas, a pejorative label that we put on people who are overly cynical, who are really critical people, just antagonistic. You're just a doubting Thomas. Stop it, you're doubting Thomas. You know, and we just kind of badger people with that label. And Thomas, the disciple, kind of becomes a villain. He becomes the disciple like other than Judas. He's the disciple we don't want to be because he's a doubter. And we assume that Thomas is a negative example for us to avoid. But today, we're going to redeem Thomas today. Okay, We're going to pull him out of the bad books of church history, and we're going to set him free. Thomas is cheering me on today. I'm just going to tell you as I'm preaching. He's in the cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about, and he is loving it because I don't think he's a bad guy. I don't think he deserves the bad rap that he's gotten. I personally find I can relate to Thomas. I find he's got an honest faith, doesn't he? He's, he's not prepared to just go along with it, with the other disciples, because the rest of them are all believing in the resurrection. He's not prepared to have a faith he doesn't have. He's not prepared to have answers, just pretend he's got answers that he doesn't have. He's sincere and he's honest and he's real, even when that means doubting. And I like that. I think he's a real guy, a real disciple. I think he's got real faith. 
even though he's got doubt. I think there's a lot that we can learn from Thomas. And I want us this morning to see Thomas as a model of what healthy faith looks like rather than a negative example to avoid. So let's look at the story. Thomas wasn't with the first disciples when they saw Jesus. So on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to all the disciples except Judas and Thomas. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there. Don't know why he missed church that day, but he, you know, he just wasn't there. And so I think part of this is just a matter of timing because probably all of the other disciples, before they were encountered with the risen Jesus, they probably doubted too, right? I mean, it's just that they'd all seen Jesus by this time. And Thomas hadn't. Probably if Thomas had been there that first Sunday when Jesus had appeared and had met him, he would have had as much faith in the, as the rest of them by this point. So a large part of this is a matter of timing. Thomas is no different to any of the other disciples. But what he does that gets him into trouble is he verbalizes his doubt. He actually speaks up. And he says, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And John, who was writing this gospel, overheard him say it and thought, that sounds like a good thing to include in my gospel. I'm going to pop that in. And I'm sure Thomas is really grateful to John just for including that little bit you know, in this gospel. Other than this, he would have gotten away with it. But John writes it down, and now we all know, doubting Thomas. So then the next Sunday, Jesus appears. So this takes place now a week after Jesus has been raised from the dead. They're all together now, obviously, except Judas. But Thomas is with the disciples, and Jesus appears to them again. The doors are locked, but Jesus doesn't bother about that. He's got a resurrection body. He just appears in the room, and he says to them, Peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas, and he says in verse 27, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And the first thing Thomas must have been thinking was, Who has dobbed me in? Because he didn't say that to Jesus, did he? He just said it to the other disciples about Jesus. But now Jesus is parroting his words back to him. Of course, Jesus is God and knows everything, but Thomas must have wondered, what's going on? Who's knocked on me here? But Jesus says, Thomas, you know, put, put your hand, put your fingers on my hands, on the nail scars, put your hand on my side. And then he says, the key statement really is at the end of verse 27, where Jesus says, stop doubting and believe. Now, that is the point, I think, where so much of our thinking about faith and doubt has come unstuck. And I just want to look at this phrase a little bit because it's so important. Now, the word doubting, I know it's in some of your translations. Just have a look. If you've got the Bible in front of you there, just take note of the specific words that are used because this is important. Some of your translations, like if you've got the NIV, it will say, stop doubting and believe. The word doubting or doubt is not there. It's just not there. It's not there. The only word that Jesus uses is the word faith, the Greek word pistis, and then he flips that around and just uses the opposite of that word, which is apistis, which just means unfaith or lack of faith or non-faith. There's not really a good English equivalent of that word. So literally what Jesus says here is stop having non-faith or stop having unbelief and start having faith. Start believing. It doesn't actually say anything about doubt. But what has happened is that translators have come along and they've looked at that word apistis and they've thought, well, that doesn't have a good English 
equivalent. What's the opposite of faith? I know it must be doubt. And they've put doubt in there, or doubting, because they have assumed that doubt is the opposite of faith. And when Jesus says unfaith, he must be meaning doubt. But doubt is just not the opposite of faith. It's just not. That translation, if you have that there, is based on an assumption. And the assumption is that faith and doubt are opposites. And they're not. They're not. In the Gospel of John, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It is rejection. You look every time that word faith is used in John. The opposite of having faith in Jesus is not doubting. It's rejecting Jesus. It's being an unbeliever. The whole point of John's gospel, he tells us in the very next passage there, is that you might believe, that you might come to have faith. In other words, that you'd stop being an unbeliever and have faith in Christ. The opposite of faith is rejection. And if you're brave enough, if you've got that translation in your Bible, it says doubting, you could pull out a pen and write the word rejecting beside it. If you're really brave, you could even cross out the word doubt. This is the kind of thing that makes the elders call me up after the service. Because I'm telling you to cross words out of your Bible. I was talking about this with my life group on Thursday. And they're like, are you going to tell us to cross words out one by one until you've got your own translation of the Bible or something? But really, I mean, I know you're taking my word for this. But, but honestly, the word doubt is just not there. The, a far more accurate translation is rejecting. And I think that's important because when you see faith and doubt as opposites, all kinds of bad stuff follows. Or, and, I, and we'll talk about this. But I just want to show you why faith and doubt have come to be seen as opposite and seen as enemies in our Christian experience. And the reason is that we have tended to make the goal of our faith certainty. Okay, So we've made the intellectual goal of our faith having certainty in what we believe. Now that's not new. That's reflective of Western culture in general over the past two or three hundred years. We have pursued the goal of certainty through scientific progress, through technological innovation, through rationality, we want to be certain. We want to be certain about the world we live in. We want to be certain about the cosmos. We want to be certain about the world and environment we inhabit. We want to be certain about human biology. We want to be certain about the human psyche. We want to be certain. So we use the scientific method to try and arrive at certainty or as close to certainty as we can get so that we have mastery and understanding of the world around us. Now, that's all fair enough. But what we've tended to do Christians is we've taken the goal of certainty and we've applied it to our faith. And so we have made certainty into a kind of God that we all follow. Like that's the most important thing to have absolute certainty. So people have applied the laws of logic to trying to prove the existence of God. So we can have certainty about that. Uh, people have applied the laws of text analysis to the Bible so that we can have certainty about the historical reliability of Scripture. Uh, people have applied laws of physics to the miracles in the Bible so we can have certainty that there really was a fish big enough to swallow Jonah or the Red Sea really could have parted that way. And we want to have certainty so we apply method and technique and logic to try and arrive at something like certainty. And if we can't have absolute certainty, we at least want to know that our faith is reasonable. You hear that phrase a lot, a reasonable faith, right? Nothing wrong with that, but we want to know we've got a reasonable faith. Now, the problem with that is that when certainty is your goal, faith and doubt really get split apart and they become opposites. Because to have faith 
we think means to have certainty. So that if you have certainty about the Bible being true, if you have certainty about the existence of God, if you have certainty about Jesus being God, then you're a person of faith. But if you don't have certainty, you're a doubting Thomas. And faith and doubt rest on whether or not you have some degree of certainty. And so people feel guilty if they have doubts because we feel like it threatens our faith. Faith and doubt have come to be seen as enemies and it's like a zero-sum game. The more faith you have, the less doubt you have. The more doubt you have, the less faith you have. So we feel like, well, if I've got these doubts about God, about the Bible, about the gospel, about my faith, I must not have much faith. I must be a person of little faith. And this tendency to separate out faith and doubt and see them as opposites actually ends up shipwrecking our faith because we think that the presence of doubt undermines or threatens our faith. I had a conversation like this with a friend years ago uh, over the issue of creation and evolution. And he, he believed that evolutionary theory was quite credible. And he was drawn to believe that about human origins. But he was a Christian. And he had a hard time reconciling this with the gospel. But he, he really struggled with creationism, if you like, or the, the kind of six-day version of creation. And so because he struggled with that question, because he had doubts about creationism, it's like it called into question his whole faith in God. And he felt like because he had these doubts, it kind of undermined the entirety of his faith. And as I look back at it now, I can see that I was working within this kind of certainty paradigm. And my goal in that conversation was to try and make him have more faith so that he would have less doubt. By trying to convince him that creationism was more true and evolution was less true so that I'd try and bolster his faith and push him a bit further towards certainty. And I think, to be honest, he probably left with all the same doubts that we went into the conversation with and I didn't do a very good job. But that's the paradigm that I was within. And I could see the way that because he had doubts about one thing, it was causing him to have a crisis of faith in general. And I think that's what happens when you set faith and doubt up as opposites. We feel like if we've got doubt, it's, we're less a Christian. And that's why people don't talk about doubts, because we feel like it's a terrible thing, that we can't really confess to it. And so we're not particularly open about it. And I think many Christians that do genuinely struggle with doubt are plagued with guilt feel condemned, feel like second-class Christians because they really shouldn't have that doubt. And they try to believe harder or find more answers or something, and often it doesn't work. They're left with doubt, and they feel like it undermines their faith. But this whole certainty thing and making certainty the goal of our faith, it gets undermined, I think, by the very event that Thomas was confronted by, the resurrection of Jesus. Our whole certainty paradigm slams into the wall of the resurrection because you can't prove the resurrection of Jesus with certainty. You just can't. Now, please, don't hear me saying I don't believe in the resurrection. I absolutely believe that Jesus was raised physically, bodily from the dead. It's just that you can't prove it with scientific certainty. People have tried to prove different things about the resurrection. You can make a reasonable argument that the tomb was empty. You can make a reasonable argument that the disciples didn't take the body. You can make a reasonable argument that the Romans didn't take the body. You can eliminate some other scenarios, 
But you can't prove with historical certainty that Jesus was raised from the dead. So what are we going to do? Does this shipwreck our faith? If the goal is certainty, then there's faith dies right there. You can't have scientific certainty. In fact, I would say that the harder you try to push the resurrection into the certainty mold and try and prove it by laws of logic or historical analysis or physics, the more you miss the point of what the resurrection is. It defies all of those laws. It defies the very laws and principles on which we operate day to day. Laws like dead people don't come back to life. It defies all that. It breaks the rules, and that's the point. The resurrection doesn't play by the rules of logic, the very rules that we use to try and prove the certainty of things. The resurrection just dismisses all of that. It defies that. The resurrection can't be contained within a purely naturalistic worldview that says this material world is all that exists. It can't be contained within that. It will burst the seams of that worldview. The only worldview the resurrection can be contained within is one that has the resurrection of Jesus at its very center. It defines the game. It doesn't serve the goal of certainty. Let me read um, a quote to you by Leslie Newbegin, who says this in, in better words than I could. He says, The affirmation that the one by whom and through whom and for whom all creation exists is to be identified with a man who was crucified and rose bodily from the dead cannot possibly be accommodated within any plausibility structure except one of which it is the cornerstone. So Newbegin saying that the resurrection doesn't serve the goal of certainty. The resurrection gives us a new goal. It becomes the center of a new worldview. It becomes the center of a brand new story with the death and resurrection of Jesus at the center. And the resurrection of Christ gives us a new goal in our faith, which is not certainty, but trust. The goal in the center of our faith as Christians is not certainty. It's trust. And, and don't hear me saying by that that we just have to settle for less, like now we can't be 100% certain, we're just going to have to be 60% certain. Now the, the difference is in the goal or the object of our faith. The object of our faith is not certainty of facts or certainty of information, certainty of data or certainty of knowledge. It's trust in a person. It's a relational goal to know and to place our personal confidence in Jesus Christ. At the center of our faith is not knowledge about Jesus. It's Jesus himself. At the center of our faith is not an understanding of things about God that we need to be intellectually convinced of. At the center of our faith is the presence of God as a personal being who invites us to follow him. That's what our faith is built on. Now, again, I know this is kind of death by a thousand qualifications here, but please don't hear me saying this drives a wedge between faith and science. Science absolutely has a place. It's God-given. It's a gift. It's just that scientific inquiry isn't at the heart of our faith either. It's not the God that we serve. We serve Christ. And everything else finds its place around that. It's good and important to have a reasonable faith. It's good to try and satisfy our intellectual questions. It's good to know that what we believe is based on good logic. That's all important. But that's not our God. Our God is Jesus, the crucified and risen one. And on Easter Sunday morning, God did something that defies all the laws of logic. And we've got to take account of that in our faith. Our goal is not certainty, it is trust. And the pathway towards trusting a person is a different pathway than gaining intellectual certainty. If what we want is certainty, 
we're going to go down the road of scientific knowing. If our goal is trust, we're going to go down the pathway of relational knowing, to know a person. If you want to trust another person, or know if you can trust another person, it's not going to be enough for you to know a whole lot of data about that person. It's not going to be enough to have certainty about a whole lot of things to do with that person. If you are going to trust, if you're going to place your personal confidence in someone else, you're going to have to get to know them. You're going to need to know them in a relational sense. You can be convinced of all kinds of data about that person and still not be able to trust them. Our faith requires us to trust Jesus. And when our goal is trust and not certainty, something interesting happens to the relationship between faith and doubt. The split disappears and the the enemies that they were become friends. If our goal is trust, faith and doubt are no longer opposites. They become friends. They're no longer pulling apart from each other. They're just two sides of the same coin as we explore and get to know Jesus. Faith and doubt go together. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. Faith and doubt go together. They're not enemies. They're dance partners. Faith and doubt belong together in our Christian lives. In fact, you could argue that without some kind of doubt, you can't actually have faith. If you had certainty about everything that we believe or that we confess, if you had absolute certainty about God and the Bible and everything to do with the gospel, what room would there need to be for faith? We, we wouldn't need faith. The very existence of faith presupposes some level of doubt, some level of uncertainty and unknowing and unanswered questions and unsureness. And that's good. That's okay. That's what keeps God as God and us as not God, that we have some doubt. So rather than seeing faith and doubt as opposites in your life, see doubt as being part of faith. Doubt is encompassed within your faith. And the goal of our Christian lives is not to have more and more faith so that we have less and less doubt. The goal is that we would have a faith big enough to hold doubt within it. A faith that is big enough and robust enough that it can contain doubt and can still confess Christ as Lord, even in the presence of doubt. That, after all, I think, is what Thomas did. If you look back at this story, <clears throat> Jesus gives Thomas this remarkable invitation to place his fingers in Scar's hands, to place his hand in the wound in Jesus' side. But when you read on, there's nothing that suggests that Thomas actually did that. All kinds of artwork has been produced with Thomas touching Jesus' nail-pierced hands and putting his hand in the wound. But there's nothing John tells us here to suggest Thomas actually took Jesus up on his invitation. He may have done, it's possible, and maybe John just didn't record it. But it's equally possible that Thomas didn't take Jesus up on his offer. All we know is that the next thing Thomas said is, my Lord and my God. Now that's awesome. That is the biggest claim anyone makes in any of the Gospels about Jesus. The biggest. My Lord and my God. That is absolutely unrivaled as a high statement of Jesus' identity. Nobody else gets close to that. The next closest would be Peter at Caesarea Philippi, who says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah the son of the living God. He gets that one right, but that's still not on the same level as Thomas who takes it up another step and says, my Lord and my God. Thomas is the first person 
in the history of the biblical story to look at Jesus and say, you are God. First person. If Thomas was here today, he'd be saying, check that out. That's what you should be remembering about me. We don't, no, no more of this Thomas the doubter. How about Thomas the confessor? Thomas, the one who made the good confession, the highest confession, the most exalted confession of Jesus' identity. I'm sure that's what he'd rather be remembered for. Not that doubt's a bad thing. I'm just saying. He'd also want us to look at that, I think. An amazing statement. And I would suggest to you that he made that statement in the presence of doubt, not because it eliminated all of his doubts. I think Thomas didn't have certainty at this point. But even in the presence of uncertainty, he could still look at Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. And that is the kind of faith that we're called to have. And notice that Thomas makes it personal. He says, my Lord and my God. In Greek, it says, the, the Lord of me, the God of me. This is personal. Thomas is recognizing Jesus as Lord and God. But more personally, he's saying, you are my Lord and you are my God. And that's true, even though I carry these doubts within me. This is real faith. Is to be able to say, I've got these doubts. I've got these struggles. I've got all kinds of unanswered questions. But still, I can look at Jesus and I can trust him as Lord and God. Because he is my Lord and he is my God. I've got all kinds of doubts in my Christian faith. I feel like each year that I'm a Christian, I have more questions and less answers. You know, and honestly, it's a funny thing because even in saying this to you, I feel like I'm confessing to a crime. You know, I feel guilty about pastors shouldn't say this stuff. I'm supposed to have answers. You know, who, you know this, is, this is generally seen as a bad thing, I think. But to be honest with you, I experience doubt. I have all kinds of unanswered questions, uncertainties, not being convinced of stuff all the time, and I want to be okay with it. I want to feel like I can stand here and say that to you and for you to be okay with it and not to be freaked out by that. Isn't this the kind of church we want to be? Where we can be honest and real with our doubts, including me, that we can just say, this is who we are. We're on a journey with this stuff. We don't need to fear doubt. If, you, if you're experiencing doubt about Jesus, about your Christian faith, about something to do with your Christian experience, I want to encourage you not to feel guilty about that. Not to feel like that's a battle that you somehow have to perfectly resolve or have answers to all your doubt before you can fully believe. Don't see your doubt as shipwrecking your faith. Don't see it as undermining and threatening your faith. See it as a part of normal faith to have doubts. Don't see your struggle with doubt as a struggle at all. It's not. It's just normal Christian experience. I think the most important thing is that we have people to talk to about our doubts. And I want to encourage you that if you are experiencing doubt, that you have people around you that you can, you can talk to. This isn't always easy. And it means when other people share doubts with you, maybe in life groups, maybe over lunch, whatever, that you don't write them off, either in your mind or out loud. That You don't undermine them. You don't look down on them as second-class Christians or see them as having a weak faith. But you allow people to be honest and free about their doubts. And just as you want to be honest and free about yours. Let's be this kind of church, right? It's up to us. Let's be this kind of church. Let's be these kinds of life groups and social circles where we can name our doubts and share them freely. We can seek, we can search, we can ask, we can be pilgrims together. And that includes the freedom to be able to doubt and be okay with that and not trying to fix each other's doubt all the time. Yes, there's answers to be given. 
Yes, there's inquiry to be made, but doubt is okay. It's a normal part of faith. So let yourself off the hook. Have people you can talk to about it and let your doubt compel you to grow toward Christ. I think that's important. There is such a thing as bad doubt. You can just be a complete cynic. You know, bad doubt, I think, is wanting to not believe. Do you know what I mean by that? Is wanting to not believe. That you, you're looking for the holes. You're just wanting to tear down this whole Christian faith. You know? That's not healthy in any sphere of life. Just to be cynical, negative, and antagonistic. But that's not the kind of doubt we're talking about. We're talking about honest questions, honest unsureness, and uncertainty. And that's okay. Let it compel you towards growing. Let it compel you towards uh, exploring the areas that you have doubt in. Looking. There are answers. But even if you don't arrive at those answers, let these things push you towards Jesus. Push you towards his presence. Because the goal, after all, is that you would come to trust more fully in him. Not to have all of your doubts satisfied. So keep growing and let your doubts compel you forward in community with one another to ask and search and seek and explore and grow deeper toward the person of Jesus Christ. I want to finish this morning with a quote that I think brings faith and doubt together so well. I think Thomas would have signed up to this. I think it expresses who he is and expresses what real faith is about. It's by a woman called Madeline Lee Engel. Those who say they believe in God, but without passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. I find that comforting and troubling in some ways. But I find that's, that's real, isn't it? And that's, that's the kind of faith I want to have. A faith in God and not just in ideas about God and not just information about God that I need to be convinced of. So I encourage you to be real with your doubt, to own it and name it and talk about it freely and let it move you towards faith. Let's be like Thomas. Let's stand with Thomas in the presence of all of our doubts, in the presence of all our unanswered questions, all the things we're not sure about, all the things that at this point are just too hard to believe for you all the things that you are just not convinced of right now. Let's be okay with all of those things. And like Thomas, in the presence of those doubts, let's allow ourselves to look up and look to Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. That's the kind of faith I want to have. Let's pray. Jesus, we feel a bit like that man in the Gospels who said to you, I do believe, help me, with my unbelief. And we feel like we're holding these things together that are so hard to hold together sometimes. We believe, but we have all this unbelief as well. God, we pray that you'd help us to be more comfortable in the presence of doubt, not to be scared of it, not to feel that it wrecks our faith. Help us to sit with our doubts and to bring our doubts to you, Jesus. Lord, we pray that each of us, now as we think about the things in our lives that we experience doubt over, particularly things to do with our faith, Jesus, we want to just bring them to you this morning, bring them to your cross. And we want to leave them there, Father. We know we can't fully escape them, but we want to say, Jesus, even in the presence of doubt, help us to have faith. Help us to have a faith that is real. Help us to have a faith that is deep in you. Help us to have a faith that is reasonable. 
but a faith that's not going to be certain. But Jesus, above all, we pray you'd help us to trust you, to place our personal confidence in you, the crucified and risen one, to follow you, to look to you, to name you as Lord and God, and to make friends with the doubt in our lives. I pray for any person here who experiences doubt today, that that would not let them, not stop them from running into your arms. Don't let us be held back by our doubts anymore. Renew our faith, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.